And I think developing that skill under a high-pressure, high-stress situation to be able to do that is something that, that employees have to develop over time. I think you think of new officers coming into the prison environment, you yeah. don't know how you're going to feel and react. But over time, you can you can reduce that sort of reptilian reaction of fear and anxiety right. and anger and an immediate reaction, but actually control your behavior more and choose choose empathy. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Sutton, and this is the Friction Podcast. On today's show, we have Professor Katie DeSells. Katie is a faculty member at the Rotman School of Business at the University of Toronto. She's also a good friend of mine. I got to know her quite well when she visited Stanford last year. Katie has done some amazing research on prison guards and how they deal with the friction inherent in their occupations and also some astounding and troubling work on flight attendants. Something intriguing that runs through Katie's work is the importance of empathy, forgiveness, and just being able to let things go. I'm I'm delighted you're here. Thanks for having me. You have done um, a number of studies, I guess, in the aerospace space, I would put it, <laughs> on the ground, in the air. And uh, one of my favorite papers, which, God, you've been working on this thing for a long time, <laughs> since I, I've known you, before I knew you, actually, on fights before flights. Yes. So to set this paper up, why don't you kind of describe how this research was done? And it has all sorts of friction and frustration characteristics. I just love this stuff. So um, I took this on with a, a former doctoral student um, and a few a few other co-authors. Um, and so we spent two weeks um, in an airport, in a large international airport, um, going behind the gates. So through security, we got special badges, which was awesome. Perfect. <laughs> um, it took us a long time to get uh, approval, but we spent two weeks in the airport watching um, flights board and uh-huh. recording all sorts of contextual information. Um, and in particular, we, we were looking at how the physical environment and the social environment um, related to customers being aggressive against gate agents. So this is when they start flaming the gate agents and yelling at them and stuff like that? It's a pretty extreme environment. Right, right. Um, so we were curious if if... The, the contextual environment was contributing to that um, and measuring the things in the environment, such as how hot it felt, um, how crowded it felt, uh, how noisy it was, mm-hmm. whether it's from um, a, a plane that's boarding next door uh-huh. or if it's uh, baby babies hey, didn't crying. Didn't you count the number of babies crying? Yes, we did. Oh, good. It's very rare for surgery. <laughs> Um, so we were we were curious about all of these different factors, and of course delays, flight delays. Um, so we categorized these different um, factors into two two types. Uh-huh. One is the physical, um, and one is the psychological. So mm-hmm. the physical relates to heat and noise and, and crowding, um, and the psychological is more of a, a frustration or a goal mm-hmm. blockage. So you have to wait in line for a long time, or there's a delay. That sort of um, stressor. So both are, are theorized, of course, to produce negative affect, right, negative right, right. emotion, um, which then could could fuel aggressive behavior. So, so you've been looking at the data. It's some of the things that uh, the gate agents do to maintain control. So I'm curious. 
from that perspective, when you've got this sort of high friction, high anxiety sort of environment where everybody's frustrated, what what do they do? Well, so I think so. One of the things that that uh, our reviewers mentioned is that we have no we have no in, um, insurance in the data that that the effects of this environment are actually working through customers. Maybe they're working through employees. Okay. Maybe the employees are actually the ones who are causing this aggression, not um, not. Yeah, customers. yeah. So it's like the nasty United employee or the nasty Delta employee who we see stereotyped in the in the press. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so we were trying to account for this somehow. So we had. Um, RAs who were who were blind to the predictors, the rest of the data, uh-huh. look at just our description of the interaction between the customer and the uh, gate agent. And so these are all situations of conflict. Uh-huh. Um, and then code how helpful, how supportive, how responsive, and how rude the employee mm-hmm. was. And then we were going to see if that also um, was predicted by the physical stress and the psychological stress in the environment. Um, and what we found was actually physical stress didn't relate to uh, employee behavior at all. Uh-huh. There's no relationship. Um, and that's, this makes sense in what we anticipated because we thought employees would be much more likely to habituate to things like the typical noise and environment. They just get used or, to the screaming babies and the, the heat and everything. Right. That's just that's the workplace. Um, but for the helpfulness and, and responsiveness um, scale that we came up with, actually under situations of psychological stress, so this is most prominent in situations of delays, uh-huh. um, that helpfulness went up. That it was huh. actually help. It was. It was. Yeah. And it. So this is counter to our stereotype of of people who work in the airport for sure. Right. Right. Um, but I think in in a lot of the these incidents, if you read them under situations of psychological distress, um, customers become more upset rather than angry. Uh-huh. And right. typically we, we lump these emotions together of stress and anger and frustration, but uh-huh. they're actually very different in terms of the responses that they elicit from other people. So if you are crying uh-huh. or having a panic attack, this elicits a, a helpful and supportive response from from gate agents rather than if you're angry and throwing a bottle and pulling their lanyard. Right. Not a helpful response. Well, so, so that's really interesting. One, one of the really simple things that you're implying is that we all sort of know that if you have some empathy and try to cool them out, that their life will be better and your life will be better. But so, so one of my, my friends, she won't let me say what airline I've already asked. She's a, <laughs> she's a pilot. And she talks about situations where uh, there's flight delays. She's been, when you're, she's been a pilot for 25 or 30 years. She's seen a lot of flight delays. And she said the, one of the most important things I've learned is to just walk up and down the aisle and just look them in the eye and say, sorry, folks. We're doing what we can, but there's not much we can do. We'll be with you as soon as possible. We, we, we're sorry to inconvenience you. And, and she said it's amazing how much difference just a two-minute, three-minute walk up and down the airplane makes and it's to me it's the same thing you're it, it, it's it's one of those uh, social lubricants that just it just if you just think people care even when things are screwed up you, you and, don't you don't get mad at them it's not unfair right they're real real people i think also they're allowed discretion um so the yeah. more discretion you give to employees yeah there's a risk that some of them will abuse it uh-huh. but i am i'm an optimist and i think that most people will will use it for good. One of the uh, themes I see in your research, I'd be curious to hear you comment on, is the advantages of um, personalizing versus depersonalizing people who are unpleasant or nasty to you. Yes, yes. So, so, like, what, so what's your take on this? It's a tool to use mm-hmm. to think about people not in their stereotypical role, but actually in something else. So officers will do this. They'll say, uh-huh. I think about um, inmates not as 
criminals, but as children or as, huh. um, or as my kids or my auntie or my, um, or my grandfather, cause they might be older than them. Um, but as family members who uh-huh. might be challenged in some way, but, but to think about them in a different way. And I think that you see this, um, tool can be potentially effective uh-huh. for reappraising someone. So if someone is upset about a flight delay, you can think about them as being angry or you can think about them as being really distressed. Um, and those two different reactions, um, we're going to prompt different behavior from the employee. So that it is interesting. So the notion, um, and we've both thought about this and written about this a little bit that, uh, sometimes just having, uh, even it's almost pity for somebody who's out of control, the poor devil. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean that it can be a weirdly effective way to not go off on them yeah. and not to not escalate. And I think we can build more of that into organizations, especially law enforcement and, and right. airlines and things that are, are full of rules and um, in group out group that we'd all be better off. So, Katie, let's talk a little bit about this uh, fascinating research you've been doing, well, for years on on prison settings, prison guards. Tell us a little bit about your research and and describe friction in that setting, how it feels, how they overcome it. So, friction in prison, I think about it, it comes from a number of different sources. So, the first source that comes to mind is is physical uh, physical stress. Huh. So, um, being in the facilities that I worked in were very old, from the 17, 1800s. Um, they aren't equipped with air conditioning. They are uh, dark and loud. Um, they don't have a lot of um, safety equipment, like mm-hmm. for visibility or for radio communication, works poorly in those environments. And then you add, of course, the added stress of being locked in with um, convicted criminals. Um, it makes for a very uh, difficult work environment. So, so there, in this environment, there's a bazillion rules. It's, it's loud. It's emotionally exhausting. Um, it's scary. So, so they're, they're kind of there's, – there's a lot of friction and stuff for, for the let's, – let's focus on the guards just for now. So what do they do to get through what's a pretty difficult role day after day? Well, I think something we were talking about before is the, is the rules of uh-huh. another source of friction. When officers first start, um, they are given advice to memorize all of the rules um, in prison. So these include various things such as different formations that the inmates need to be in in order to walk from place to place, but also a whole host of minor things that mm-hmm. to us regular folk just seem sort of trivial rules like an inmate can't wear a hat inside or an inmate can't have gum. Mm-hmm. Um or you know, just various different small things, but but hundreds of these. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens when officers first start working with inmates is that inmates test them to see to what oh. extent they know all of those rules, and if they can catch them in a time where they don't know one of the rules, then they can use it to manipulate officers. So, for instance, uh-huh. um, an inmate might say, "Oh, I haven't had a piece of gum in ten years. You know, it's just a piece of gum." Do you mind bringing me a piece of gum? Mm-hmm. It, you know, it would be just... And so, of course, as a human being, you want to, you know, maybe give right. an inmate a piece of gum. Um, but as soon as an inmate has a piece of gum, they can use it to stick the locks. And now you have a security problem and you could potentially lose your job. So the inmate can then use it to manipulate the officer to get 
more and more privileges, essentially. So so it's very important that they need to memorize all these rules so they can justify to inmates that they know what they're doing. So how how in this in this to me is partly coping and and partly control. So so how do you do a job like that um, in such a way that you have some empathy for uh, for the inmates while at the same time uh, not don't go crazy and don't lose control. It's really hard. It's really hard. Um, I know, uh, I see some officers, they are, they have ways of thinking about their job that remove a lot of the, the difficult emotionality that Mm -hmm. we've been talking about, such as, um, fear. For instance, a lot of officers will say they deliberately try to not know what inmates did in their, in terms of their crime. So they can think of them less as something to be afraid of. Um, so they'll try to not know about what crime they did, which I think is sort of counterintuitive because if I was an officer, that is exactly what I would want right, to know. Right, 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 right. Who am I dealing with here? But they take the opposite approach. So so that's sort of a vote for denial. And denial's not not bad, actually, <laughs> as long as they don't stab you, I guess, or something. That's true. That's true. But I also see, um, I remember the first officer I watched complete her job duties, uh, a woman who's maybe 5'2", mm-hmm. um, smaller than me, worked on a maximum security tier, uh, so a group of 150 maximum security male inmates, mm-hmm. um, and she worked a 10-hour shift virtually by herself, wow. no weapons, not even handcuffs, no spray, nothing. She did it all on interpersonal control. Um, and wow. I thought that was just amazing that, that people can do that. But um, many officers will say inmates let us run the place because uh-huh. we make it safer. So we protect them from each other. We give okay. some, we give structure, um, but really, it's it's they are ultimately in control because they always outnumber officers. One of our implicit working models I told you about as well. You get under friction, that leads to frustration, fatigue, and then you sort of lose energy. So how how do they maintain their energy day after day, given some of the difficulties that you're talking about? Just the difficulties in the role. I think overall it's it's very hard, but I, well, I know some officers who who do it, um, and and they are just very emotionally stable people. Huh. They have an ability to to forgive very easily, and uh, they they are they behave sort of what I said moment to moment oh. instead of living in the past. They're moment to moment. How are you treating me right now? And can I work with that versus what did you do to me yesterday or what are you threatening um, to do to me tomorrow? It's right now. What can I do huh. and how are you treating so me? The so living in the moment. Well, that's interesting because there's kind of that argument that if you're the kind of person who who, who worries and ruminates, that the, the load is never off you. You're never actually off work. So that ability to sort of shut it off and have a, a bad memory um, sort of maybe it's I don't know it's denial because you're back to denial again, mm-hmm. but it's sort of re- it's one of the ways to reduce the weight of all that of how exactly. difficult things are. And I think officers who are able to let let it go, let uh-huh. the work, let the job go, and this is a mantra, mantra that's very common mm-hmm. in this work is let the job go, leave work at work, um, because they can bring that home as well. They can bring that weight, um, and so officers sometimes talk about treating their their children like inmates, for instance. So so some of the standard. It's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy. For, you forgive, you forget, you emotionally detach. The, yes. the, the standard sort of behaviors, boy, that's tough. It's hard to select people for that. So you've got these new papers on what you're, you're calling dark nights or organizational vigilantes. So why don't you define what you mean by a dark night or organizational vigilante? 
I have some terms that people used for them in in the survey that I thought were. Interesting. Oh, what are some of the terms that they use? We went. So hear they these. said um, a member of the Little Justice League, <laughs> a bloodhound for my boss, um, Batman, of course. Batman, of course. Uh, policeman, a hall monitor, which is one of my favorites. Um, of course, a snitch, tattletale. Um, but a theme often that we saw in the data is someone who is perceived to be very hypocritical. Okay. So someone who is morally self-righteous, but um, maybe spending so much of their time correcting coworkers that they don't do their job quite so well. Or they have flexibility for themselves to be a minute late, um, right, right. but all of their coworkers cannot. All right. So so here we've got, on one hand, people who are complete petty tyrants. So what's the difference between somebody who is just a pain and is just adding frustration and friction and somebody who's actually useful? Um, so the way I look at it is it, it's repeated behavior over time uh-huh. and try to think about what might be the motivation for the behavior. Is it to try to gain favor with the boss? Is it to try to sabotage someone else? Is it um, out of out of moral responsibility? And this is where we get into the what I think is super interesting about vigilantes is that we theorize at least that it comes from a moral motivation that that they perceive some sort of moral vacuum in the organization that they need to fill. And you can see this This is why we chose the term vigilante instead of tyranny Uh is that. when when vigilantes perceive some sort of lack of formal justice system, they will enact it themselves. Um, so they will go out and try to be essentially a superhero to try to fill that vacuum. Um, so we really think that vigilantes are acting because they want to do they want their employees to do the right thing. They tend to be very black and white and very binary. Mm-hmm. So you got a little bit of sort of uh, OCD and authoritarian personality going on all at once in there, huh? Right, and maybe a dash of paranoia. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Just the kind of place I want to work. You're also describing some of the greatest whistleblowers, too. So how do you tell the difference between the whistleblowers, like we've seen at Wells Fargo and so on, who just kept getting slapped down and everything? Mm -hmm. uh, Because they definitely took the the moral high ground versus versus people who are just nuts and drive us all crazy. Well, I think whistleblowers tend to blow the whistle on one and quite serious issue. Uh-huh. Um, they might make several attempts, unsuccessful attempts to do so and eventually go outside the organization, but it's typically around one one issue okay. or several interrelated issues, but it's not um, the repeated daily, weekly, monthly behavior that, that we see with vigilantes um, and, and often not with the, with the small rule violations. Okay, okay. so, so for uh, leaders and anybody involved in selecting um, or deal with new employees, you're giving us some hints here about who to look out for. So people who see things, see things as black and white, people who are paranoid, what else would you be worried? <laughs> you're sort of doing the background check on somebody. Who else would, what else would you look for? Um, I think someone who has a, a strong sense of, of moral self-righteousness uh-huh. can be problematic. Um, it's good to have a moral identity and, and to have right. morality generally be something that's important to you. But I think that might be something that's curvilinear when it gets extremely high. Um, you have no flexibility left at all to see anyone else's perspective or, or flexibility across situations. you could take a magic wand to get rid of some of the unnecessary friction in some of these really severe bureaucracies you're looking at? Let's take airlines and prisons because they're so similar. (laughs) 
in a lot of ways. You, just, yep. uh, you, you always study people who are incarcerated in one thing or another. What, what, would you, what would you, you know, so let's start out with the subtract question. What would you remove? That, that's a tough question. Um, um, I think paperwork. <laughs> paperwork? What do you mean by paperwork? Paperwork, um, uh, all of the forms, the various forms that you need to fill out. If someone stubbed a toe, essentially that's an injury. You need to fill out a form. Oh, so this if, is in prison. I, I, think it's, I think it's common to both environments where there's uh-huh. just a lot of documentation of everything that is exhausting. Um, and it also, I think, prevents, in terms of air rage, uh-huh. um, it prevents people from reporting things that maybe should be reported. Oh, that's interesting. Because they don't want to spend the time it takes to document it. Um, so I think paperwork. That, that is interesting because, I mean, this research we know on cops – there's, there's, uh, I'm thinking of the experience with airlines and that it, it, is that a lot of times the paperwork is just so onerous. This is one of the criticisms from insiders for United Airlines. This is not a shock that, that one of the reasons that uh, their employees tend to be so out of tune with customers is they get in so much trouble when they don't fill out the paperwork or follow um, rules completely. <laughs> yeah. They're just in terror of breaking the rules. They don't mean not right. to pay attention to you. Right. They just are so focused, they're just going to get slammed or fired if they break a rule. Right. So they forget there's customers there. Something that we learned with the Fights Before Fights uh-huh. paper was that um, gate agents, their primary job is not customer service. Huh. Their primary job is to get the flight out on time, and that is how they're evaluated. If they're one minute late, their supervisor shows up and Ooh. they get in trouble. They are not there to check on your meal or to really change your seat. They're mm. there to get the baggage to the to the plane, and they're they're typing on the computer furiously because that's that's how they're evaluated. Um, but customers see them as as there for them, and so when they're huh. not helping them and they're actually doing their job, this is where you see a big conflict happen. When uh, customers really expect them to to help, but really they're not evaluated on that at all. That's that's interesting because I I mean the two airlines for better or for worse I've flown the most in recent years are United and Southwest, and I always have the feeling with Southwest that they put less administrative load on the employees. Everything's simpler, even the way you line up at the gate. So it always seems like they have more bandwidth to kind of deal with your personal issues. And I just wonder if it's because it's a simpler bureaucracy. Maybe. Okay. So the other one might even be more unfair. So you've still got your magic wand in your hand. So you talked about removal and we're talking about, I like this idea, sort of the friction of paperwork that takes away our ability to be empathetic. But, but is there something you could add if you're going to add something um, to typical organizations, to a prison, to an airline? Is there something you would add that would just make life a little easier for all of us? Good question. Um, I would add. Can you add sleep? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll take sleep. Okay, I, you I and Ariana Huffington. Yeah, that's yes. the magic. <laughs> but I, I think when we're well rested and well fed, we uh-huh. have a much better tolerance for um, interacting with other people. And I think all of us could could take a little bit more of of that in our interactions with others of giving them the benign attribution of distress, not anger. You probably know Jonathan Lavav's research about the Israeli judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, real briefly, there's on Katie's point about rest, there's research that shows uh, that uh, the longer it's been since your judge took a break, the more likely um, he or she is to be hard on you independently of how guilty you are. It's just sort of amazing research. Can I add one more thing? Sure. Sure. Um, so I would also say, 
uh, positive press attention for some of these organizations and their employees. So I think we think about airlines. We're surprised to learn that airline employees are helpful. Um, right. But that's their job. And um, I think at least when I first started doing research in the prison environment, I was surprised that officers sometimes really helped inmates. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of stories about seeing inmates out in the community and them thanking them and them having meaningful connections with inmates um, that were helpful, that they felt like they helped turn them around mm. or they taught them a lesson. Um, it might be something small, uh, like how to tell time when they were never taught how to help, how to tell huh. time on a, on a analog clock. So, um, But it might also be something more serious as counseling someone when... Um, their kids were at home with someone who was abusive to them, and they were in the prison environment and not able to do anything about that. Um, but really, positive press attention for some of these employees who work really hard despite the extreme challenges right. that we talked about and also the fact that most of us would choose not to do that work. Um, it, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, a lot – and this, this goes to your vigilante stuff in particular, but uh, there's a lot of related researches that when we have some power over people but we feel disrespected, we as human beings are sometimes at our worst. So you're saying just by – it doesn't cost anything to give somebody a little respect and a little prestige. That they might actually be nicer to all of us and more competent at their jobs. Right. So. That we we have a part a part in that in that treating them in a certain way makes them feel respected, um, and they can rise to that occasion. So, Katie, thanks so much for joining us on our Friction podcast. It's great fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. One of the elements of friction that we've talked about in this podcast is that friction is something that causes you to ruminate on how your bosses, how your coworkers, how mad you are at them, how much they've done you wrong. And the great thing I take away from Katie's research is that if we could all just let go a little bit, maybe create a little emotional distance, the workplace would be better for us and for our colleagues too. Next week, for the final episode of our inaugural season, we've got a very special episode. Kim Scott of Radical Candor fame joins me and an audience of about 100 people at IDEO, the global design firm. We recorded the episode at their San Francisco office. She tells the story of a man named Bob, not me, who taught her to move out of ruinous empathy into radical candor. She describes radical candor as a combination of caring personally about the person you're speaking to and challenging them to do their best work. It was good fun to be able to record in front of such a lively audience and to take questions from such smart people. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Daniel Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Davor Sankovic provide web support. And an extra special thank you to my colleague and friend, Katie DeSells. And now for the final tangent. So what's the, uh, what's the upside of vigilante? Uh, a, a broken clock is, is right twice a day. Uh-huh. <laughs> so just the statistical odds of reporting more means sometimes they will report things that are problematic for organizations. Huh. And we did have a few examples in our survey work. Um, one person who uh, reported a meth dealer in their organization who was working as a foreman in a construction company. Uh-huh. Um, someone who discovered fraud um, and also stealing of office supplies, of course. Of course, the evil <laughs> stealing of office supplies. Right. Right.